Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. Uh, Christian Rogers is on our ministry team. He's one of our, our uh, staff members here who does a lot that you never see, except you see the results of what he does. And so he has helped us a lot in Dixon. Uh, he has helped us a lot in Columbia. He is helping Akin a lot at one of our best campus ministries at Vanderbilt. If you ever get a chance to go to the Vanderbilt Tuesday night uh, encounter meeting, you will rejoice before it is done. You will just have your heart filled with excitement for what God is doing among the next generation. So Christian and Selena just returned from Cambodia uh, not too long ago. He may be still a little jet laggy, but he, we scheduled him for right away after Cambodia. We wanted him right now. So uh, uh, he was visiting family there uh, who are there on mission. So uh, Christian's life is immersed in mission. He is given to mission. He has an evangelistic heart. Every Wednesday morning, he is right over there about seven rows back, takes his shoes off because he knows it's holy ground, gets down there on his knees and prays before the Lord. Have you noticed that, Eric? He's over there right there just praying with his shoes off on holy ground. We just stay over here because we don't want to smell it. But it's a, a, <laughs> he's, a, he's a great soul. And he loves Jesus. And he wants others to love Jesus. And we get to, be, we get to hear from him as his Bethel spiritual family. So would you give him a warm, hearty Bethel welcome tonight? Christian. Merry Christmas, everybody. It's good to be here with y'all tonight. Move this word. Um, yeah. Uh, as Pastor Dave said, I'm Christian Rogers. I'm one of the ministers on staff here at Bethel. I'm not a pastor. You can tell because I haven't shaved my hair off yet. <laughs> if you just look around, everyone else you've seen on stage with that title, that's the defining characteristic. <laughs> um, no, uh, Married to a beautiful woman. Her name is Selena. Picture of her. Uh, met her at college at Vanderbilt. We'll actually we'll go back to KC here for Christmas to spend some time with her family, as I'm sure many of you are also doing, traveling in this time next couple weeks to go be with family and enjoy the traditions that you have in doing so. Um, you know, growing up, we had a lot of traditions surrounding Christmas. One of them was uh, we would always go to Midnight Mass. My grandmother's Episcopalian, and so it was always very important to her that we go do Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve. It was also her birthday. So we always did, and it was always a very special time. I always enjoyed getting to go be with her, and growing up, I started enjoying the, liturg the liturgy that was associated with that. Another would be the movies that we watched around Christmas time. My older sister's favorite movie to watch was It's a Wonderful Life. I think it took me many years before I really started appreciating that film. But at some point between Christmas and New Year's, we would watch It's a Wonderful Life. Another older, uh, oldie but a goodie that my parents introduced us to was the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Um, so, you know, just a great little, I think it's like 20, 30 minutes long, just teaching you about the meaning of Christmas. And there's the iconic scene in there where they're all arguing, arguing about it. And 
They get in a fight. Everybody storms off. Charlie Bound goes, what's the meaning of Christmas? And Linus goes, I know. He walks the center of the stage. You got the piano music playing. The light shines on him. And he reads uh, Luke 2, 1 through 20, which we're going to talk part, part about that tonight. And it's just a beautiful, quiet, tranquil moment with the perfect music surrounding him and coming behind him. I think that kind of pictures how a lot of us view Christmas and even view this night in which Christ was born. It's peaceful, it's tranquil, you got the shepherds in the fields, and the glories of the heavenly hosts come and show up around them. Uh, in Luke 2, it says, In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born in this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So we have this great view of this scene in our heads that's also, you know, where maybe we associate it with different Christmas pageants we've seen, specifically those with kids. You know, in their shepherd, that's prob- shepherd clothing is probably either a bathrobe or a blanket that's been cut with a hole in it. The point is, it's this cute, nice association. But when we dive in and look in, that's not really probably what was going on or not really how the shepherds were on that night. So I'm going to pray for us and we'll jump into the word. Lord, I pray that you be with us, God, um, as we dive in and learn about those to whom you chose to announce the coming of your son, dear Lord, that you'll show us how we can be like them, dear God, and in what way and why you chose to announce the coming of the king to lowly shepherds in a field. And so as I was preparing a reading, what kind of sounded to me was like, who are these shepherds? We, we hear a lot about, you know, the heavenly host proclaiming and the glory of it. But who exactly are these shepherds in the field? What is the context of a shepherd in first century Israel? I think in scripture, we have such a high, when we read it today, we have such a high view of shepherds. Jesus says, I am the shepherd. Moses was a shepherd before he became a leader. David was a shepherd before he became a leader. It's associated a lot with the Lord taking care of us or a method through which the Lord raises up a leader for his work. But these shepherds are different. They're not people who can get raised up to be leaders. And how they're viewed in, in, in their culture is honestly pretty negative. Um, shepherds at this time are outcasts. They're looked down upon. Part of the reason is because they're unable to follow the regulations of the Sabbath. Due to the nature of their job, this is a job that requires 24-7 work. You can't leave sheep and go rest for a day. Believe me, the sheep will escape. They'll get into trouble. They'll end up dead or stuck in a ditch. There's this really funny video I've seen on YouTube of this sheep who's stuck in a ditch. People come, they dig it out, they stand up, the sheep starts running, jumps, and is back in the ditch. And it can't move. It can't get out. Like, you can't leave sheep alone. You have to tend to them all the time. And so because of that, the shepherds are considered unclean. And being unclean in that time was a big deal. It meant you couldn't enter the temple. I mean, you couldn't actually enter in and worship in the presence of God. On top of that, they're viewed as being untrustworthy. They're not someone who you typically want to associate with. They're not someone who they come to town that you trust. It's like, you know, watch over your goods. You're assuming they're going to probably try to, to swindle you in some sort of way. They're probably uneducated. They've probably been shepherds since they were young. They grew up as probably a family business that they've taken over. And so they probably have a lot of time for learning. They're not the most educated people. They're not, who, they're not people of influence or status that you would think of if you were going to send out and proclaim the coming of a king. Um, they're, in a sense, working the job that no one else wants to do. They're out in the middle of nowhere, 
it's a dangerous job. We don't think about that, but it's truly a dangerous job to be out guarding a flock from the potential predators. These are men who are capable of fighting off bears and lions with their weapons and with their hands. They're not some gentle person or some gentle child. These are dangerous people with dangerous weapons who know how to use them. They're probably strong, burly men. They're the type of people who, when they do get a break, just want to crack open a cold beer and sit by the beach. They might or still find their buddies and play poker. Like that's, that's the kind of men we're probably dealing with in this story and who Christ and who God is sending this revelation to. On top of that, on all these other things, because of the fact they can't, um, because they're unclean, the fact they become untrustworthy, in that society, they're essentially one rung above a leper. A leper is someone who, when they walk through the street, literally has to yell out the fact they're unclean. So you have them, and then next up is the shepherds. You know, they're not to say they're unclean, but when you see them, you know what kind of person they're expecting. You're probably going to try to avoid them. You're going to limit your interaction with them. But at the same time, you need them. In 4 BC, Josephus estimates that 250,000 sheep were sacrificed for Passover. Who's watching those sheep? The shepherds are. They're the ones watching the flocks that are going to be used for the ritual sacrifices so that you can go and worship God, but they're not actually allowed into that same space with you to worship him. Nobody really wants them around, but you kind of need them. Nobody really wants to be associated with them, but you actually need them there for your society to function. Them skipping a day of work would be like if coal miners today decided not to go mine coal for a day. Our electric grid would crash. It would shut down. You don't want to really associate with them. They're dirty. They're filthy. They're even, even in modern minds still feel like covered in coal when you're done. But it's a necessary job that society relies upon to function. And so it's to these people that the message of Christ's birth has come. And it's these people that God has, has sent the word. And, the, and the, I have to, the question actually rises as to why. Why them? Why to those who are so low, those who aren't considered trustworthy, whose testimony isn't admissible in court? Like even if you, they took the word and said it, they probably wouldn't even be believed. In fact, we know they probably weren't believed. It says later on that they went into Bethlehem and spread the word and people wondered. They said people believed what they said, so the people wondered at what they said. And so why would you choose them? I know I wouldn't. If I was God looking out at who I could send to share the news of the birth of the king, the most important proclamation of, a, of the birth of royalty ever made, I wouldn't choose people whose testimony isn't even considered valid. I think to me, there's kind of like three options when I think about it in my mind. One, I could send it to the world leaders. I could wait for the next G7 summit, send the angels to announce it right at the opening ceremony. You can imagine the cameras are going and before the whole world we proclaim the Christ has come. And you know, they have the next 20 years now to prepare to lay their crowns before his feet when he grows, when he grows up and is ready to ascend his throne. Or maybe I want to get the word out even faster. I could send it to the influencers, people on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, people who are constantly making content all the time, watched by millions of people every day. Think about how fast the news would go out if I sent it to them. If they took it and would actually then take the message forth, it could go around the world in minutes, if not seconds. Or 
maybe I want to send it to people who are more religious. I could think and try to think of the largest, of the pastor of the largest church in every country. I could say, if I give it to them, it'll get to the most people and he'll send it to the rest of the pastors in that country. I could get this message around to the Christians, to, to my church quickly, and to the people of influence in my church so fast. But that's not who God chose to reveal it to. Who in my mind makes the most sense are the very people that God skipped and passed over to give it to the shepherds. And this wasn't a matter of proximity. Jerusalem is closer to Bethlehem than we are to the Cool Springs Galleria. It's about a two-hour walk. The religious leaders of the day, they're there. You've got the, the, the Roman, the, the people who are leading the ruling over Jerusalem for Rome, of Israel for Rome, they're there. So if you wanted to hit the people of influence in society, you could, and they could get to Jesus quickly. But no, God, God chooses to send it intentionally to a group of shepherds in the middle of nowhere. And so why? Why is that who the king of the universe with the ability to announce this birth to anyone chooses to announce it to? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31, but God chose what is foolish of the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak of the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That in this moment of God choosing who to give this revelation to, he remains consistent to his nature and chooses the least expected, the foolish, um, the foolish, the weak, the despised, and the low to be given the most important announcement in history to date. And this, and when we flip back through scripture, this is often the person that God chooses. This is often the kind of person that God looks for when he's needing a miracle to happen. In fact, we don't have to look really any further than Jesus' own lineage. It includes Rahab, a prostitute of Jericho with whom chooses to hide the spies so they can bring back the report of how to conquer the city. If you move on from that to Ruth, a Moabite woman who loses her first husband and then it's by her second that the um, seed of David comes. We look at David, who's listed as the least of his brothers. So unimportant that he's left in the field when the prophet Samuel comes to pick out which one's going to be king. He's forgotten, he's rejected, he's left behind. But he's the one that God chose to raise up and by whom the Christ would come. And so as we see even in this moment, before Christ is born, the continuation of how God has often chosen to work. Because oftentimes, it's those who are least likely to be believed that are most likely to testify. It's those whose society would rather push aside, ignore, who cast out, that are most likely to, to recognize the value they've been given and take it forth and boldly proclaim it. And we see this, this pattern continue to be echoed in the life of Jesus once he comes. That Jesus, throughout his ministry and time on earth, will continually align himself with the lowly. And lowly here doesn't necessarily just mean poor. It can also mean the rich, like the tax collectors, who would also go to. But it begins with Christ even in the very beginning. 
he begins his ministry by being called his apostles. He calls Peter, James, and John. They're not shepherds, but they're fishermen. It's another job that's hard work, hard labor. You're out all day on a boat. And then when you get back, you're either delivering dead smelly fish or you're fixing your net that they were in. That's another job that's going to set you apart as someone who probably needs to take a bath, but you don't got time to and the resources aren't there to. You're not really the person that people want to invite into their home, that the religious leaders are going to invite in for, you know, a, a, a warm meal to have a discussion with. You're stinky, you're smelly, but that's who Christ calls to be his first disciples in Luke. We see it with Zacchaeus, who, um, the tax collector, the tax collectors, similar to shepherds, they're rejected by society. They're not poor, they're rich. They've made their wealth off stealing from the Jews. They are Jews who have made their wealth by betraying their people to steal by command of the Romans. They're, they've aligned themselves with the enemy. And yet when Jesus passes, passes through Zacchaeus' town, he stops at the sycamore tree, and it says, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay in your house today. That I, knowing that how the people view you, want to enter your house and be with you and probably spent the night there. That Jesus saw this man who had been rejected and whose society wanted to push aside to ignore because of his actions, who was dishonest, stole, and hoarded for his own wealth. He was greedy and said, I'm going to spend my day with you and eat in your house. We see it again with the Samaritan woman in John 10. Here's this woman who you could literally list out so many reasons why Christ should not associate with her and should not talk to her. First of all, he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. They just, they did not talk. They did, it'd be like a Ukrainian and a Russian talking right now. Like, it just, it, you're not supposed, not supposed to happen. Secondly, she's a woman. He's a rabbi of Israel. He's a religious leader, the man of authority, talking to a single woman with nobody around. Lastly, she's living in adultery. We know this both by the testimony of what Christ tells her, also by the fact that she's showing up to the well at noon. You don't go to the well to get water at noon. You go to the well in the morning when it's cool. But she's come at noon because of the shame she has of living in consistent adultery. We know the person she's living with right then is not her husband, because Christ tells us so. And yet, in each of these instances of calling the apostles as Zacchaeus and the woman, these are those who end up going forth and taking the word to the world. For Zacchaeus, it brings immediate change in his heart. He gives half of his wealth to the poor and says, if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to give it back fourfold. That's a pretty great interest rate. <laughs> Definitely like that right now. <laughs> For the Samaritan woman, it's even greater. It says that she, was, you know, she came out to the well at noon. We know that the apostles had left and gone to town. That means they probably walked past each other. They did. They probably walked to the other side of the road. The apostles went into the town to get, it says to get supplies, probably get food. They probably limited their interaction at town to be as short as possible. These are Jesus' followers, the ones who are supposed to know his heart best. Yet in this moment, they choose not to associate with that town, but to probably get what they needed and leave and get back to Jesus at the well. But this woman, upon hearing the testimony of Christ, 
gives potentially one of the worst evangelical messages ever. She doesn't come back and say, hey, I found the Christ. She goes, hey, come see this man who told me everything I ever did. He might be the Christ. He, it's not he is, it's he might be. I don't know, but he told me everything I ever did. Come check it out. This woman who is living in shame in her town to the point where she goes out to the well at noon, now comes back with a message. And because of her, it says, many in the town came to believe in God. And we see it with the apostles. Peter, this fisherman, is the man on, on whom Christ chose to build his church. And so in each of these instances, even going back to the shepherds, when each of them receive the word, there's an immediate response that's brought about. They're unable to keep it in, but they actually have to go forth and tell people, here's what was done. Come and see. Almost everyone who comes into contact with Christ, whether it's the lepers, the blind, the lame, the sick, even when he tells them not to go, they go and tell. He says, go and be quiet. They then proceed to go and announce who he's come. Because it's those who are the least likely to be believed that are often the most likely to testify. And in this, this identification with the lowly that we see in Jesus, we begin to see how we too are supposed to act. That here, as Christ did, Christ who proclaimed himself to be the good shepherd. Christ who said, you know, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. In doing so, he's aligning himself with one of the lowest vocations in Israel at the time. He's aligning himself with those who have been pushed aside by society, rejected by society, who society doesn't want to deal with, doesn't want to interact with. And he's turning into something good. He is turning into that image of a shepherd who cares. That shepherd who will die for his flock. That shepherd who will go to a cross and lay down his life so that we can have a restored relationship with God. Because just as it was to those who could not enter the temple that, Christ, that God sent the word, so it's to the us who were pushed and rejected from God that through Christ's sacrifice are we welcome back in. Um, Jesus is often accused by the Pharisees. They often come to him and complain about who he's hanging out with. He responds to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And these are the people we see Jesus associate himself with. As I was reflecting back on this time, this word, I think what comes out is the question of who am I associating myself with? Am I content to sit in church on Sundays? Am I content to sit in church on Sundays with those who I know the word, to have my Bible studies during the week with those who know the word? Sure, maybe there's some discipleship happening and, help, and they're growing. But am I associating myself with the lowly, those who aren't in these seats? Maybe like the shepherds, those who for some reason can't make these seats. Those like the truckers who are working for Amazon that we need to get our two-day packages here. So they better be driving on Sunday so I can get my package. But am I remembering to go to them with the good news? Am I remembering to take 
the message that Christ has given me to be a good shepherd as Christ was. And I'd see the lonely, those who are forgotten, those who are pushed aside. And am I going to them? And am I willing, like the shepherds, like the woman, like Zacchaeus, to risk my reputation to do so? What's more important to me? Because I can come to church, I can lead Bible studies, and I can go into the world and never actually share the gospel. Um, when I was at Vanderbilt, I had three friends. I was a mechanical engineering major. So we had a lot of classes where we had projects. I had three friends that we did all of our projects together. We worked really well as a team. Um, and in three years, I never once shared the gospel with them. I probably saw these people three, four times a week. I ate with them. We did homework together. But I didn't take the gospel forth to them. I was always waiting for the right moment, waiting for the right question, waiting for the right time that never came. The shepherds in our story don't wait. They receive the word. They go and check its validity. And then they tell it to the people around them. They're not people of, of, of known character. They're people who are probably going to be distressed. People are going to be disbelieved. But it doesn't stop them from bringing the word forth. It doesn't matter to them whether or not they're believed. It doesn't matter to them whether or not anyone in Bethlehem actually turns and goes and checks out the child. It seems from Scripture that nobody does. That the Christ is born, the message is sent, and maybe five shepherds go and see but they're willing to risk their reputation to go and announce the coming of the Christ to everyone in that town. Same way that Christ was willing to risk his reputation to be considered a drunkard by the religious of the time so that the lowly, the tax collector and the sinner, the fisherman, the shepherd, the prostitute could know him and come to him. And so the question I think I have to pose for myself and for you all is I gonna, am I going to sit in Bethlehem and wonder? Or am I going to recognize what Christ has done for me? Obey him, love him by obeying his commandments. Realize that to him much has been forgiven. He who has forgiven much has loved much. And take that message forth. Because the only reason I've been reconciled, the only reason I'm no longer lowly and outcast, is because of what he did for me on the cross. So we celebrate that here, beginning of that here in this season, with the birth of our Savior. Pray with me. Lord, Be with us, God. Show us your heart, dear God. Teach us to identify with the lowly. Teach us to identify with those whose society is passed over, who we may, who we would typically walk past and not think about, Father. Give us a heart that recognizes what it is that you did for us. Give us a burden like the shepherds had to go and proclaim the good news. Dear God, don't let us be able to sit 
You're a God. But break our hearts for those in our lives, those in our workplaces, those at the coffee shops we frequent, dear God, that we would otherwise pass over. But help us realize, Lord, there is nothing more important than this proclamation that Christ came, he was born, he died for our sins. In Jesus' name.